haunting, echoing screams and moans, pleading for mercy. Not the sounds that would have typically been associated with the building of a tower at the time. What would have been more common were sounds of hammering, wooden scaffolds being constructed, and stones being chipped away at and put into place, workers calling out to each other for assistance or to point out a problem. But they worked in solemn silence, the sounds of their efforts drowned out by the cries of the victims, as well as the distressed onlookers. The people of the city of Esfazar watched this grisly horror show unfolding right in front of them. 2,000 of their captured soldiers, fathers, brothers, sons, buried alive into a newly raised tower and set in among the stones and mortar. In what would end up as a grim monument, an example of the heavy price that would be paid by those attempting to stand against their new overlord, not only to those in Esfazar and its surrounding territories in Khorasan, in modern-day eastern Iran, but also the lands beyond, whether newly conquered or soon to be conquered. And the news of this event was certain to travel fast. This was the calculation, the meaning that was intended and that again came to mind as Amir Timur surveyed the building that he had commanded to be raised, while half listening to the foreman of the construction team, nervously explaining his next steps to complete the gruesome task. Timur nodded, waved at him to continue, and wheeled his horse around. He was a busy man and further conquest awaited in Persia. As Timur rode off, he reflected upon the symbolism of that tower again, not caring for the poor sods that were being made an example of, a necessary atrocity by his estimation. It was a penance that would certainly dispel any future rebellions, the price just being too steep and that would also spur new enemies to submit to his will. This was Timur's philosophy, now manifested into the physical form of that foreboding tower, a message to all. Give up peacefully and you will be spared. Resist, and my terrible wrath awaits. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord, fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history, some with more lasting effects and others that were relatively short-lived, but certainly no less interesting. That said, when I select a particular warlord, I plan to of course review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime. We'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it, and finally what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat, that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser known subjects, such as the feature of this episode in part three of our continued exploration of Amir Timur, better known in the West as Tamerlane. If you haven't had a chance yet, prior to getting into this episode, you may want to start with episodes 1 and 2 to get a more detailed idea of all the events leading up to where we'll be starting this episode off from. But here's a quick summary of episode 2 to help refresh your memory. We looked at Timur and Hussein's short, unsuccessful career as mercenaries, wherein Timur receives the grievous wounds to his right hand and leg that mark him for the rest of his life, both physically and 
then later with the naming conventions Teemer the Lame and eventually Tamerlane. We see Teemer's growing fame that acts as a magnet for tribes in Transoxiana to join in with his and Hussein's rebellion and to oust the Mogulistan Khanate from their occupation. But that also begins to show the cracks in the foundation of Timur and Hussein's relationship, fueled by Hussein being increasingly threatened by Timur's growing acclaim. Timur and Hussein, then armed with a swelling soldier base, take on the Mogulistan army head-on, and though outnumbered, win a series of epic engagements that end up pushing them out of Transoxiana. A spectacular achievement that was almost completely erased in their final battle against the Mughals near the Kujand River, wherein, due to Hussein's hesitation in a peak battle opportunity, in the hope that Timur himself would fall in the fight, ultimately ended up in a key battle being lost, providing the catalyst for Timur and Hussein to face off against one another in a deadly struggle for control of Transoxiana, with Timur emerging victorious. So when we last left off in 1371, at 35 years of age, Amir Timur officially became the undisputed leader of a Transoxiana. From his capital in Samarkand, he immediately set to work and began to rule in earnest, including making the following measures. He began adjudicating on issues and complaints from his subjects. He made it clear that from here on in, that under no circumstances should any servant, minister, or officer alter his verbal or written commands in any way. And perhaps most importantly, he issued out a code of regulations regarding the payment of officers and soldiers, including titles and high offices, to reward those that helped him to achieve his victory and keep the military happy, vital components if he wanted to stay in his position of power. Given all the monumental challenges that he overcame and what it took to get there, you might think that Timur at this point would have taken time to focus his rule in his dominion and revel in his newly established power. Well, as I'm sure you can guess, this was certainly not the case for this crafty leader, who was hungry for more thus marking the unofficial end of the Chattagai Khanate, instead being replaced by the beginnings of the Timurid Empire, the very starting point of an astounding future 35-year run of almost constant wars, expeditions, and conquest. In the spring of 1372, with Transoxiana firmly under his thumb, Timur began looking beyond his borders for opportunities to exploit his gaze settling upon the neighboring region of Khorezm, northwest of Samarkand in modern-day western Uzbekistan, particularly its capital city of Urgench, which had become one of the largest and most important trading centers in all of Central Asia, and rivaling Timur's capital of Samarkand as the preeminent merchant hub along the Silk Road in the area which ultimately forms the basis for Timur's primary motivation to invade. Granted, to stir up internal support, he used the excuse of its leaders ruling its fellow Muslim subjects with tyranny and oppression. So Timur led his horsemen north against the Sufi dynasty who were in control of Khorezm. As a side note, there were few details available on the sizes of the armies, but I would estimate that about this time, Timur's forces accounted for about 30 to 50,000 soldiers. The Khorezm army, led by Hussein Sufi, decided to meet Timur in the field for a decisive pitched battle. And it was decisive, but not in the direction that they expected, and they were soundly defeated by Timur, with those that had not been killed or taken prisoner falling back into the fortified city of Kat. Timur then marched his troops right up to the city gates, and the governor had no appetite for battle, opening its gates and pleading to be treated mercifully. While Timur did indeed spare the lives of the inhabitants and widespread destruction, all the wealth and property that could be carried away was taken. 
After spending three days systematically plundering Kat, Timur left the city, heading in the direction of Urgench and traveling along the Amudaria River. By the time Timur reached the vicinity of Urgench, Hussein Sufi, to his credit, had been able to reinforce, reorganize, and pull his army back together. And not learning his lesson from the first decisive defeat, again decided to meet Timur in the field, marching out with his large body of troops and appearing on the opposite side of the river. But he was simply outclassed as a general. Using the darkness of night to cover his troop movements, Timur ordered the commander of the left wing to go upriver and cross over, while ordering the right wing commander to go downriver and cross. As the sun dawned over the Amudaria, Timur's center began to cross the river and began an amphibious assault to engage the Khorezm army, keeping them occupied, allowing the left and right divisions to catch the Khorezm army by complete surprise slamming into them from both sides, resulting in a complete rout, with only Hussein Sufi and a handful of his army managing to get back to Urgench, which Timur shortly then laid siege to. And while in the besieged city, it appears that Hussein Sufi took his own life, dismayed and shamed of his disastrous handling of the situation and at his inability to defeat the invaders. He was succeeded by his brother, Yusuf Sufi, who immediately sent word to Timur, offering up surrender, obedience, and vast financial tributes, that is, if he would spare the city. And to sweeten the deal even further, Yusuf offered up his niece to cement the peace treaty. She was an addition of immense value, because she was also of the Genghisid line, making a great match for Timur's eldest son, Jahangir, giving him the ability to further tie his family in with the Genghis lineage, thereby securing a valid dynasty into the future. The victory, however, was short-lived. As soon as Timur left, Yusuf reneged on the deal, not sending the bride as promised, and when pressed, he raised the standard of revolt. In the spring of 1373, Timur led a second expedition into Khorezm at the head of an even larger army than the year prior, and crossed the sandy desert of Khorezm with an impressive show of force. Yusuf's opposition was a serious miscalculation on his part, as the leading nobles in Khorezm had no appetite to renew their fight against Timur, having learned their lesson well from the previous year. And Sufi was apparently at risk of being cast down internally as well, so he wisely sent an envoy to Timur, including his niece, along with even more riches, begging for pardon. With Khorezm now fully in check, Timur looked towards Mogulistan for his next conquest. As you can probably gather based upon the earlier episodes, gaining revenge on the Mogulistan Khanate for their occupation of Transoxiana would have almost certainly been high on Timur's checklist. But what made this action more imminent was the chatter that Timur had learned about. In 1375, Timur learned through his intelligence network that Kamar Udin, the new Khan of Mughulistan, who had likely killed and replaced Ilyas Koja as Khan a couple of years prior, he had made it clear that his future intention was to take Transoxiana from Timur by force and was commencing preparations for the attack. But this was a different Transoxiana now, fully united under Timur's mighty hand, and he didn't wait for the Mughals to send an invading army, but instead took the initiative and gathered his army to take the fight to them, opting not to wait for spring and venture out with the step firmly within winter's icy grasp. Plodding slowly through the late winter storms, they eventually made their way into Mughulistan, but these conditions took their toll the freezing temperatures impacting the soldiers and was particularly hard on the horses. Many of the notable chiefs suggested that they return to Samarkand to wait for more ideal weather. But Timur would not be deterred and vowed not to return until Kamar Uddin was made to repent his boasting. 
This early commencement of the invasion in the unseasonable conditions took them by surprise, enabling Timur to easily take control of a number of Mughal cities, including Andijan, which is about 500 kilometers east of Samarkand, in present-day eastern Uzbekistan. Timur then gave the honor of commanding the advanced divisions to his son, Jahangir, who had been showing great promise as a future heir to Timur's growing realm, and ordered him to make the initial attack deep into enemy territory, where scouts had found that Kamaruddin and his army were encamped, awaiting reinforcements. Jahangir took the initiative, and borrowing from his father's warfare manual, attacked the enemy camp at night, decimating their ranks. And then, like a bloodhound on the hunt, he continued the chase, constantly harassing the enemy, and soon, Kamaruddin was left with only a handful of companions, deep in the mountains, left with only the clothes on their backs. With the Mughal threat stopped for the time being, many of the tribal chiefs raised the idea that victory celebrations were in order. But Timur reportedly stated to his chiefs, as if by premonition, Although we have quenched the fire, we have left the sparks. Of note is that Timur then sent Jahangir back to Samarkand to protect the region in his absence, while also calling up his second eldest, Omar Sheikh, to gain experience as a commander. As Timur predicted, in the spring of 1376, the Mogulistan army was reignited, with Kamaruddin at the helm of a large force, looking to exact revenge on Timur, who now occupied their lands. Oh, how the tables had turned. Kamaruddin then entered into Andijan, and with a significant numerical advantage, managed to push out the forces there that were under Omar Sheikh's command, although he still managed to put up a good fight and performed rather admirably. Learning of the dire situation his son was facing, Timur moved out from his position with his body of troops towards Andijan. And as he closed in, he gained further intelligence that the Mughal Khan was close to engaging his son's forces and greatly outnumbered them. So Timur sent off two of his generals with the bulk of the army to reinforce Omar Sheikh to better the odds, leaving Timur behind with an estimated 2,000 horse. However, the intelligence that Timur had received had been a clever ruse, and as soon as the bulk of his army was gone, Kamaruddin launched a surprise attack on Timur and his small retinue. Despite being fewer in numbers, the troops with Timur were the cream of the crop and exceedingly battle-hardened warriors, and devoted to the emir, and seemingly willing to follow their leader into any situation. Kamaruddin sprung the trap and smashed into Timur's smaller group with vigor. Being so vastly outnumbered, there was no way that they were going to beat the Mogulistan forces head-on. They were simply too few in number and would eventually be worn down by the much larger enemy. In the middle of this chaotic melee, Timur targeted Kamar Uddin's position and led his men to carve out a path towards him brutal hand-to-hand combat that almost killed the Mughal Khan with a sword blow that was only stopped by his helmet. Kamaruddin was wounded and fell back out of the battle and, as intended, seeing their leader flee resulted in his army melting away as well. With the threat again quenched but not stamped out, it appears that the few remaining embers eventually went out by themselves. Kamaruddin was unable to recover from this loss and lost the confidence of those around him, his luck having run out and he would eventually die shortly thereafter. Cloaked once again in victory, Timur reached the vicinity of Samarkand, content with the results. Retribution and lands having successfully been taken from the Mughals and both of his eldest sons having performed quite admirably in battle, especially Jahangir. As they neared Samarkand, however, Timur was greeted by devastating news. The upbeat mood of the conquering warlord turned to deep sorrow, as a group of somber nobles emerged from Samarkand 
to give him the news that his firstborn son, Jahangir, heir to the empire, had succumbed to an illness and died at the young age of 20. Timur, inconsolable, reportedly closed himself off in isolation for several days, but was unable to do so for too long, being that the demands of the kingdom, so centralized to him, demanded that he rule. Some months after this, a notable refugee arrived at Timur's court, barely escaping capture and death, arriving in tatters. Toktamish, a prominent noble of the White Horde, whose lands were just north of Transoxiana. Timur received Toktamish with the greatest honor and respect, knowing that this descendant of the Genghisid line would be a valuable ally into the future, or at the very least a means to secure Timur's northern border. At this time, the White Horde was under the ruler of Urus Khan. Toktamish was also a member of his family, and he was ambitious, hungry for leadership, and had risen in rebellion, but was initially defeated and then chased into Timur's court. Perhaps he saw some of himself in this younger man, being a fugitive looking to reclaim his homeland. However, the more likely explanation is that Timur saw in this feud a means of extending his power and influence, aiming to install a new leader via Toktamish as the ruler of the White Horde. Now, among the various historical references, it's unclear exactly what support Timur supplied to Toktamish. However, it appears at the very least, Timur gave him funding, arms, and security in the form of a safe haven from which to recalibrate and summon additional forces to his cause to take over the White Horde. Toktamish made another attempt in 1377, but was again repelled and came scrambling back to Timur for assistance. But then, a prime opportunity. In 1378, the White Horde was set with internal strife, and by nature or by force, Urus and his two sons had died, opening an excellent opportunity for another attempt. On his third attempt, with Timur riding alongside, Toktamish was finally able to take over the White Horde, the internal strife working to his advantage, with tribes flocking to his banner. Due in part, of course, to his ancestral claim, and linkage to Genghis Khan, but also stemming from powerful allies like Timur being at his side, and there were few that were willing to oppose his takeover and crowning as the Khan of the White Horde. As the year came to a close, with winter returning to the steppe, Timur returned to Samarkand, Toktamish firmly in control of the White Horde, and as a consequence, the northern border of Transoxiana now secure with an ally beyond. Timur's opportunistic disposition and ability to read a situation and mold it to his benefit again so evident. In the following year in 1379, Yusuf Sufi, the troublesome Khwarezm governor, raised the flag of rebellion once again. Timur immediately set out and made straight for the Khwarezm capital, laying siege to the city of Urgench. Seeing the vast array of forces that Timur had brought on, Yusuf realized that he would not be able to win in the field. So he opted for another tactic, instead challenging Timur to single combat. Despite the injuries to his hand and leg, Timur was a well-seasoned warrior and undoubtedly brave, displayed in many previous instances, having led charges alongside his forces and being in the thick of battles. While he could have easily scoffed at such a challenge, confident in the supreme strength of his army, he agreed to meet Yusuf in single combat, despite the protests raised by his officers. The following morning, Timur donned his battle armor and rode out towards the walls of the city, calling out in challenge to Yusuf, waiting for him to exit the gate. Silence. Deafening silence was the only answer. This must have been completely demoralizing for the Khwarezm army. Their leader unwilling to honor the challenge he had issued. Probably fully expecting 
that Timur's physical ailments would prevent him from accepting the one-on-one fight. In contrast, Timur returned to his encampment to the thunderous cheers of his army, further entrenched as a leader among men, living up to the notion prevalent on the steppe that only one who could wield the bow and the sword was worthy to hold the scepter. If Yusuf wouldn't come out, Timur's army would enter by force into the city, and they were invigorated by the brave display of their leader. They assaulted the city with aggression, confident in the end result. Timur's warriors stormed the walls and gates, quickly making progress. The assault developed into a complete rout, followed by a massacre and destruction of the city. Although many of the inhabitants particularly the artisans and builders were enslaved and taken to Samarkand and Kesh, and were soon put to work beautifying the lands in Transoxiana. Timur's appetite for conquest wasn't even close to being satiated. Over the winter, he began to get restless, in part knowing that key to his ongoing success and legitimacy was keeping the periphery kingdoms in check, which served to do two things weakening those around Transoxiana to insulate his territories from any invasions, and also keep the unity of his varied tribes and forces intact by identifying external enemies and opportunities that would also yield plunder and riches. With these objectives in mind, in 1380, Timur looked 1,000 kilometers southwest to Khorasan, particularly the Pearl of Khorasan, Herat in modern-day eastern Afghanistan. So what made Persia such an attractive place of conquest for Timur? Well, in a couple of words, division, squabbles, and the inability of the region to coordinate efforts. At this time, that area was known as the Ilkhanat, the southwest section of the Mongol Empire, initially controlled by Hulagu Khan in the mid-1200s one of Genghis Khan's grandsons. It included parts of modern-day Turkey, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, just to name a few. After the death of the lost Khan in 1335, there was a power vacuum in the region. What followed after this period was a never-ending sequence of smaller chieftains and regional warlords popping up, infighting, dying, and then being replaced by others to do the exact same thing. In order to stoke the fire and assess the appetite of Khorasan to resist, Timur summoned the Prince of Herat to pay homage. With no response forthcoming and learning about the weak state of the army housed in Herat, in the spring, Timur launched his attack. In a relatively short and bloodless affair, Timur took the city and set up his third son, Miran Shah, as the governor of Khorasan which in the future would act as the staging point for subsequent conquest of the entire region. The rest of 1381 was spent solidifying his hold on Herat and its surrounding territories, conquering nearby towns, villages, and bending tribal chieftains to his will, including the city of Esbazar. Then methodically moving westwards, readying an incursion into the area of Mazandaran, a region located on the southwest tip of the Caspian Sea, in modern-day central north Iran, which would get him in striking distance of the Christian kingdom of Georgia to wage jihad, etching his status as the sword of Islam. With the spring of 1382 underway, Timur renewed his Persian campaign, marching west into Mazandaran, which was under the rule of a local warlord, Amir Wali. Timur sent an envoy to Wali, demanding his surrender, invoking his lack of claim of rulership to Mongol lands. As we learned back in episode 2, with Timur now holding the title of Gurgan, meaning son-in-law of the great Khan, he was therefore a valid representative of the Mongols. However, Wali refused to give in, using the time before Timur's impending arrival to shore up his defenses for the impending ruthless wave that was about to crash upon his region, while also reaching out to neighboring rulers looking for allies. But no assistance was offered up, 
likely symptomatic of the disjointed nature of these rulers and the bad blood given the squabbles within the region, but also likely attributed to these other rulers not wishing to get on Timur's radar as a future target. Without the view of hindsight, however, and Timur's future ventures to conquer all of Persia, the best bet would have likely been to join their armies in with Wali to make a concentrated defensive effort and dissuade Timur from further incursions. Ultimately, this is something that we will never ever know if it would have been effective, and one thing is exceedingly clear in that, by not banding together, this would make it much easier for Timur to pick off these smaller kingdoms one by one. Which was exactly what happened here. Wali attempted to mount a defense, but was overwhelmed and killed by the larger and battle-hardened Tartar army under Timur. The conquest in Mazadaran complete, and the kingdom of Georgia within striking distance, where he would galvanize his status of being a warrior ordained by God to rule. This venture, though, was put on hold, rudely interrupted by a rebellious uprising in the city of Esfazar, near Herat, that had been taken in the prior year. He marched his army southwest to Herat and put the rebellion down with a ruthless efficiency, retaking it quite easily, followed by a particularly brutal reconquest of Esfazar as well. However, this event was not over yet, bringing us to the story that we covered right at the top end of this episode. Timur intended to make an example of Esfazar in order to discourage any further uprisings, as this was clearly counterproductive to his wandering eye of new territories to enhance his realm. So, in an action of calculated cruelty, he ordered that a new tower be raised in the city. With 2,000 captured soldiers cemented into the walls of the tower, buried alive, yes, alive, set within the stones, bricks, and mortar that went into its construction. A grim monument to act as a symbol or reminder of the fate awaiting those who attempted to subvert his rule. In the following year, Timur intended to continue his conquest of Persia this time focused on an area that undoubtedly held painful memories, the province of Sistan in southwest Afghanistan. You may recall these previous events from episode 2, painful both from the defeat in battle at the hands of the Khan of Sistan, but also from the injuries to his right leg and hand, rendering him permanently impacted. Timur led a huge army of approximately 100,000 horsemen into Sistan, making straight way to Zaranj, its capital city. Timur and his army reached Zaranj unopposed. However, when they reached the city, they were met with a force that was fully intending on resistance. The battle ensued, with the defenders mounting a valiant defense, so much that Timur at one point took it upon himself to join the fray personally in order to support his army's fading momentum. The battle became a bloody slog, with Timur almost losing his life and having his horse shot out from under him. Eventually, Timur's army were able to crush the defenders, and the city sued for peace, with Timur advising that he would only accept the surrender under one condition that the remaining forces drop their weapons and bring them out to him, which they did. Except, Timur was in a foul mood, his fury not even close to being satisfied. Angered by the losses of his army, his horse being killed, almost his life taken once again, and likely due to his previous experiences in Sistan during his youth, as soon as the weapons were brought to him and guarantees made that no further resistance would be made, Timur ordered his army to annihilate Zaranj, its inhabitants, young and old, men, women, children. No one escaped his cold wrath, and Timur's army razed Zaranj to the ground. Buildings, infrastructure, irrigation, people, nothing was left except for ashes. 
from the smoldering ruins that were Zaranj, Timur then swung his army east towards Kandahar, which fell to him with little resistance, before then marching out westwards back to the territory of Mazadaran, eyeing the prosperous city of Sultania, a commercial center in its territory with strong fortifications along the Silk Road. However, when Timur arrived with his massive army in tow, its ruler opted to flee, with the remaining leaders instead choosing to open its gates to Timur, well aware of the alternative if they decided to attempt mounting a defense. The echoes of what had happened in Esvazar and more recently in Zaranj were widely known among the Sultanian inhabitants, and they had no stomach to make the attempt, not willing to risk Timur's wrath. What a prize this bustling commercial city was, a major trading center along the Silk Road, taken in a bloodless conquest with no losses. With all the successes that 1384 had afforded Timur, he had a mind to continue this campaign, and started looking towards the city of Tabriz, in modern-day northwestern Iran. But it was late in the campaigning season, so Timur instead chose to return to Samarkand to allow his warriors to rest and enjoy the vast spoils that they had accumulated over the past years. Tabriz could wait until the following spring. While Timur and his army were resting back in Samarkand, he received concerning reports that Toktamish, now Khan of the Golden Horde, had sacked Tabriz, the city just outside of Timur's growing empire. Although Tabriz was not technically under Timur's rule just yet, by Toktamish taking such actions just outside of Timur's sphere of influence and marching through his lands to get there without any forewarning was of grave concern. Timur took this as a direct threat from his protege, who, by his very own hand and assistance, was installed as Khan of the White Horde. This presents a good opportunity for us to depart from following Timur's story, for a brief interlude, to see what Toktamish had been up to. Why? Well, if you haven't guessed it by this point, when Toktamish sacked Tabriz, this began the ball rolling heading towards the inevitable and monumental clash between these two warlords that mirrored each other in so many ways. When we last left Toktamish in 1378, he became Khan of the White Horde as a direct consequence of Timur's support and involvement. And he had since been busy defeating the Khan of the Blue Horde and reuniting these territories into the Golden Horde. Toktamish Khan then continued an aggressive expansion campaign, entering into Russia with successful incursions there, including the sacking of Moscow in 1382, before turning his attention south, invading Georgia, Armenia, and going as far south as the Ilkhanat lands and ruthlessly sacking Tabriz. In the spring of 1386, the now 50-year-old Timur and his army marched out towards Tabriz, making it to the city with little opposition. And seeing this formidable army in the field, the ruler, Sultan Ahmed, elected to flee and keep the gates wide open, knowing that his depleted city would not be able to stem the coming Tatar tide. Being that Tabriz surrendered without a struggle, the city was spared any bloodletting. However, what was becoming a common practice and what happened here was that all the skilled craftsmen and builders were gathered and sent back off to Samarkand to work on the vast city building and beautification projects that were underway based on Timur's commands. Using Tabriz as a base, Timur then headed north into the Caucasus in Georgia, aiming for its capital city of Tbilisi. This move served two purposes. Firstly, Georgia was a Christian kingdom. Therefore, conquest there against the infidels would etch his status as a warrior of Islam. Secondly, this was the path south that Toktamish had taken previously, pillaging over the previous year down to Tabriz. By establishing a presence there 
this would forestall any further incursions from the Golden Horde and was a direct response to Tokhtamish. Unlike the easy conquest of Tabriz, however, the Georgians had readied strong defenses for their city, King Bagrat V and his soldiers manning the walls of the city, looking on with defiance as Timur and his massive army arrived in field. Timur set up camp and ordered siege weapons to be set up, one of the first clear instances of focused siege warfare, and was soon unleashing fury into the city, stones and fire weakening the strong city walls, waiting for the opportunity to make the assault. When the defenses of Tbilisi were adequately reduced, Timur then worked his soldiers into a religious frenzy, shouts of Allah Akbar permeating the air, soldiers ready to die in service to Timur and their god, with the destruction of this infidel kingdom. Timur unleashed his forces and the dangerous assault began, quickly turning into a blood-soaked affair. The Georgians, to their credit, they were able to mount a vigorous defense. However, without the advantage of strong protective walls, the Georgian soldiers were eventually overwhelmed by Timur's seasoned and numerically superior army. The defenses of Tbilisi were breached and the Tartars poured into the city decimating the defending forces and were able to capture King Bagrat, who was set in chains. Followed by the destruction of churches and monasteries in order to erase Christianity from the area. After spending some time in his very own dungeons, Timur then recalled Bagrat, giving him the option of renouncing Christianity and submitting himself to Islam and Timur's rule or being executed, not really giving Bagrat a whole lot to work with. So he agreed. Timur in turn allowing Bagrat to retain his leadership position, but as a vassal king. In the spring of 1387, Timur and his army departed from Georgia, heading south to Armenia and then westwards, in quick succession, taking the cities of Erzurum and Van in modern-day eastern Turkey, taking him uncomfortably close to the lands of the powerful Ottoman Empire under Sultan Murad I. However, no alarm was raised by the Ottomans, because shortly after Timur's presence near the borders, Timur then turned his army around and instead plunged headlong into Persia again, and marched directly to Isfahan in modern-day central Iran. Now, the precursor to this was a changeover in leadership in the area. Zain al-Abidin, who had recently succeeded his father, which Timur saw as a great opportunity to exploit, with a newly installed leader at the helm that was unproven and with uncertain support. As expected, as soon as Timur arrived, the uncertain support melted away. With all those present, seeing the intimidating, vast array of horse archers that Timur had brought, just beyond the walls of the city. Knowing Timur's reputation and that attempting to resist would potentially result in complete obliteration, the city of Isfahan surrendered and opened its gates to Timur. That night, however, Timur left to his encampment beyond the city walls, leaving behind a contingent of his troops within the city to help keep the peace. The discontent and tension within Isfahan was palpable, and that very night, that tension exploded into action, with the conquered inhabitants ambushing the occupying Tartars, massacring Timur's soldiers and then celebrating the liberation. This rash action mutated into trembling fear with the arrival of the next morning as those from the vantage point of the walls would have seen Timur in a terrifying rage, roaring orders at his generals and vowing revenge, promising total destruction of the city and its inhabitants, while rallying his army into a frenzy of impending doom. Timur then unleashed his army, ordering them to storm the city and not spare a soul. Men, women, and children, no one was left to be alive 
Timur's men made their way through the city, butchering indiscriminately, torching buildings, plundering at will, complete and utter destruction. Even those that managed to escape the city were reportedly chased down and killed. What was left was nothing except for smoking ruins. Smoking ruins and an exceedingly grotesque statement of the price for resistance and betrayal in the form of numerous piles of decapitated heads strewn about the city in mounds, which was estimated to have totaled approximately 70,000 victims. Isfahan, now wholly subdued, with no ability to raise further disturbances, Timur wasted no time in gathering up his forces and eyeing a new target, the city of Shiraz, 300 kilometers to the south. The city of Shiraz, however, terrified of the potential consequences, offered no resistance whatsoever and opened up its gates and coffers to Timur. Weeks into this occupation, while Timur enjoyed languishing in Shiraz, this brief interlude was suddenly interrupted with desperate news arising from Samarkand that Transoxiana was under attack by none other than Toktamish, Khan of the Golden Horde. Toktamish at the head of a unified Golden Horde and all the resources that came with that, including some interesting allies in tow, the new Khan of Mogulistan and the troublesome Khorezm, also raising the flag of rebellion and casting in their lot with the Golden Horde, attempting to take Timur's homeland while he was away. When the messenger arrived, the situation in Transoxiana was dire. One of their main cities, Bukhara, was already under siege, and a number of some of the smaller towns and villages already despoiled and plundered. Timur's son, Omar Sheikh, had been left in charge in his absence, and had attempted to stem the invasion, but was outnumbered significantly and lost in battle only narrowly escaping the battlefield with his life. Given their previous relationship, one cannot help but wonder why Toktamish instigated a war against his benefactor, who had equipped and stood beside him to take over the White Horde, especially when there were so many other potential targets at the borders of the Golden Horde lands. The reasons are obviously lost in time. However, it's rather possible that it was attributed to two main reasons. First, although Timur was clearly the force in Transoxiana, he wasn't the direct lineage of Genghis Khan, therefore not deserving of leadership. Second, the shadow of Timur's help may have been hanging over Toktamish. By taking over Timur's lands, this would assert Toktamish as a great leader of his time no longer fearing the whispers of how he was only able to attain his conship with Timur's help. Upon hearing this dire news while resting in Shiraz, Timur immediately commanded his generals to make ready for the march back to Transoxiana, knowing that days would be the difference for his homeland either falling or remaining intact. As the cold, dark days of winter arrived, Timur and his army covered the 2,500-kilometer trek back to Bukhara with impressive haste. Instead of sticking around to meet Timur in battle, Toktamish and his allies broke their siege of Bukhara and their stranglehold on Transoxiana, returning back to their lands to wait. Nervously, I would venture to assume, knowing the reputation of Timur and that this action would spur a definitive reaction. Despite his rage and wounded pride, Timur stood down and did not immediately pursue the invaders. As the weather was quickly getting worse, knowing that a counterattack at this time, without significant preparations, was doomed to end in failure. As the spring of 1388 arrived, while this is the time that Timur would have typically gathered his forces and take them afield to exact revenge, he instead focused on rebuilding the areas devastated in the assault from the previous year, settling affairs in his homeland to ensure that no usurpers were able to stir up any trouble. 
With Teemer taking no actions by the onset of the fall season, the invaders were likely nervous but maybe settling down a bit, thinking that any impending attacks would happen in the following year, being that the fall typically indicated the end of the warring season. Before the end of that year, however, Teemer would begin his war of retribution, and the toll would be horrific. In the next episode, we'll learn more about Amir Timur's response to the invasion of Transoxiana led by Toktamish, exacting revenge on Khorezm and Mogulistan for their participation, before focusing his attention fully on Toktamish, leading up towards one of the most ambitious marches and battles that would test the very limits of his army, but also demonstrate his incredible reach and leadership. Afterwards, laying the groundwork for one final meeting with his one-time protege, attempting to put down this threat for good, continuing the expansion of his Timurid empire into new lands as well, such as India and the prized city of Delhi, where riches and atrocities await. And much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please subscribe or comment on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. I would certainly appreciate a five-star rating if you found this episode informative or entertaining. And lastly, you can head over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional information like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where, if you're so inclined, you can also sponsor the show directly, with 10% of the monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes, namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com